As we continue in our study of James, uh, one of the things that I think is true and we see being ev- made evident in our, in our uh, study is that you can learn a lot about a person just by listening to what they have to say. Uh, James seems to make it clear that, that learning actually begins with listening. Maybe that's why he says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. All throughout his letter, if you've noticed, he's quoted people that he's addressing or that he's writing to. And if you listen to what these people are saying, you can learn a lot about how they live. For example, he says that when a rich man came into their congregation, someone said, you sit over here in a place of honor. But when the poor man walked in, they said, you stand over there or sit at my feet. If we listen to what they say, we learn that these are people who have segregated individuals based on their perceived importance. They're leveraging relationships for selfish gain. In other words, I like you as long as it's good for me. We also learn, as James quotes, someone who says, I have faith and and you have works. We talked about how this is someone who is separating their practice of faith from their profession of faith. We learn that that same person sees a brother in need. They don't have clothing or the, the food that they need, and they tell them, go in peace. Be warm. Be filled. Saying all the right words, but not doing the right thing. At the beginning of his letter, James says, Let no one say, when he is being tempted, I am being tempted by God. Just because God is not tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone towards evil. By listening to what this person is saying, we we find someone who's blaming God in order to absolve themselves. And this goes all the way back to the garden. You'll remember when uh, God confronted uh, Adam. What did Adam say? the woman that you gave me (laughs) using God's sovereignty to remove personal responsibility you see when we listen to what people are saying we can learn a lot about what's going on in their heart James is writing to Christians as we've been talking about who are surrounded by compromise and if you look at their lives it seems as if they've segregated their life creating a division between faith and practice, between what they believe and how they behave. I believe that they are are experiencing a tension that you and I face in our world today. And within that tension, there is a temptation to try and satisfy both of those needs, what our heart desires and what our world demands confession of faith, but a life of compromise. And James is trying to help us understand that if that's the pattern, then we're only deceiving ourselves if that's the life we live. The Christian life, very very simply and clearly, is a call to complete surrender. And although we may answer that call with a decision, quote, to give our life to Christ, we know that that's only the beginning of what really has to be a daily surrender. Spiritual growth is the process of moving from a life that is divided 
to a devotion that is pure, that is sincere. A process where more and more of our life is surrendered to the Spirit of God. Transforming our lives to to make us more like Christ. Not just in the lives we live, but even in the words we speak. And that's where James is going to take us this morning. So before we look at the Word together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do want to come humbly before you as we open your word. That's why we stop to pray. We stop to put our heart in check and to realize that we're opening sacred words from a holy God. And we would ask that you use those words to shape our hearts, that they would inform how we live and and even the words we speak. So Lord, would you work this morning through the power of your word, and we pray this in your name. Amen. So turn to James chapter 3, verse 1. Very scary verse, in my opinion, and let me read it to you this morning. It says in verse 1, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Now, in order to understand this warning, we need to be clear about the biblical context of this statement. You remember, James is writing to Jewish Christians. These are people who have, by and large, grown up in Jerusalem and and lived a very religious lifestyle. And as a result, religious leaders in that culture were significant people of influence in that society. During that time, teachers were held in high regard. In fact, the name rabbi literally means my great one. And so because of the prestige of that kind of a position, people would pursue the office in order to climb a social ladder that existed in their day. Now, for the most part, it's very different than the world we live in today. Becoming a pastor is not a prestigious career path. (laughs) In fact, with all the scandals we have going on, if anything, people hold those in full-time ministry with some type of suspicion. And rightly so. Our context is very different than what we see during the life of James. And so... In order to understand what James is saying, we need to be careful to preserve the original context. When he says, let not many of you become teachers, it's because many were, but with the wrong motive. They were underestimating the magnitude of the responsibility. He's warning them not to become a pastor, simply to become a person of influence. Because you will be held accountable For the words that you speak. James actually includes himself in the warning. Look again. He says, we will incur a stricter judgment. He understands that that teachers are, are stewards of God's truth. That their words have a significant impact on the spiritual well-being of other people. And they should never take that responsibility lightly. I want you to know that I feel the full weight of this warning. Terry can tell you, I wrestle every single week 
with the words that I plan to speak every Sunday. I spend hours and hours working on a sermon, but I think about it every single day. When you see me up here looking at notes, it's because I'm unwilling to make it up as I go. It's that important to me. be honest, I kind of begin every week with a little bit of anxiety, knowing what's required in the week to come. And, and I'll admit, part of the pressure that I feel that a lot of pastors feel is due to the kind of what I'll call the consumer culture of the Christian church. People are committed to a church as long as that church is effectively meeting their needs. Every sermon has to be better than the week before. Ministry needs to be cutting edge. Impact needs to be global. If you're not impressed, I'll just go somewhere else. That as a result, it's, it's tempting for teachers to cater to the desires of the people. Avoiding hard truths in order to escape the criticism that's going to come. Looking for encouragement or popularity as a measure of success. Altering the message in order to impress all the people. But James is reminding us, teachers are ultimately accountable to God. We're responsible for handling His truth with integrity. And and for living a lie that doesn't discredit what we say. So don't be too eager to stand behind the pulpit if your desire is to impress all the people. Because I'll tell you, it'll be a miserable experience because you'll never impress all the people. On any given Sunday, I might encourage some, but I will offend others. Not intentionally, but it'll happen. But most importantly, it just doesn't honor God when you're in it for yourself. Thankfully... (laughs) James will now take the spotlight off of a teacher. He's going to put it on you. (laughs) So now it's your turn. Look at verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. So before you become too critical of teachers, realize that we have a shared responsibility and we all fall short in what we say in fact there is no easier way to sin than through our speech remember a few weeks ago i read that proverb proverbs 10 verse 19 it says when there are many words sin is unavoidable everyone is guilty of speaking careless words and we are all accountable for what we say So the warning may be especially true for teachers, but not exclusively so. Everyone should bridle their tongue. Careless words are a sign of spiritual immaturity. And James says that when we control our tongue, we are disciplined in our whole life as well. In other words, when you walk by the Spirit, you will watch what you say. You say the right words at the right time, 
as Paul would say, that it give, may give grace to those who hear. Grace-filled words come from a spirit-led heart. So yes, even our speech needs to be surrendered to the Spirit's control. Look at how he continues in verse 3. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they may obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Behold, the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the captain desires it to go. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. Behold, how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. James is trying to impress his point upon us about trying to understand the power of the tongue. And he gives us three important illustrations. The first one involves a a bit in a horse's mouth. A horse is a, a, a huge, powerful animal controlled by a small piece of metal inside of his mouth. It's been several years since I've been to the horse races in Riodosa, but when I went, what I loved to do is stand right next to the track because I wanted to literally feel the power of those horses when they came running by. It was breathtaking. That massive horse could overthrow that rider in a heartbeat. But by placing a bit in the horse's mouth, now the rider is in control. And he can direct that horse wherever he wants it to go. James moves from the strength of the horse to the power of a ship. Again, you have this huge vessel floating on the water being directed by a small little stick, so to speak. Just a small little paddle underneath the water. Even though the wind tries to drive that ship in one direction, the rudder is able to move it in another. And it gives the the captain complete control of wherever he wants that ship to go. And then finally, James highlights the ability of a very small spark to start a very large flame. Many of you know the history in 1871 of the Great Chicago Fire. A fire that literally burned for three consecutive days because it could not be stopped. It destroyed over 17,000 buildings. Almost 300 people died. And here's how it started. A cow tipped over a lantern inside of a barn. That little fire in that barn almost completely annihilated one of the greatest cities in America at that time. James says, in the very same way, our tiny little tongue boasts of equally great things. In other words, there's just as much power hidden in our tongue than what we see displayed in a horse or a massive ship or destructive fire. But like a horse without a bit, our words can run off and leave us. Like a ship without a rudder, we can say things without even thinking about what we're saying. And these uncontrolled words can wreak a destruction, a fiery destruction. There is an undeniable power hidden within our tongue, a power that must be bridled in order to be used for good. 
Because the words we speak can either bring great healing or they can cause deep hurt. The only solution or the determining factor is based on who's in control. It is a hidden power that must be harnessed. Listen to what he says in verse 6. He says, the tongue is a fire. The very world of iniquity, the tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds and reptiles and creatures of the sea is is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. Now, I don't know about you, but I read those verses and I think, that doesn't sound very hopeful at all, (laughs) right? It seems as if James is saying that the the power of the tongue is bent towards evil. (laughs) He says it's a restless evil. It's it's full of deadly poison, a, a destructive fire fueled by hell itself. James says, Mankind is able to domesticate all kinds of earth's creatures. We can make a cobra dance. We can teach a lion to jump through a hoop or teach a dog to fetch a ball. All of these creatures can be tamed, but he says no one, no man can tame the tongue. It will not submit to human control. And yet it is a hidden power that must be harnessed. (laughs) That doesn't just sound hopeless. It is hopeless. And I think that's his point. Because it begs the question, is there a power greater than the one man can possess? Right? Is there a power greater than the one man can possess? If you would, turn to Matthew chapter 12. I want to look at a passage in Matthew where I believe Jesus speaks to this issue. In this scene, just to kind of give you some context, Jesus has healed a demon-possessed man who the Scripture tells us could not hear or speak. So in this miracle, Jesus displays his power over the tongue. In an instant, a man who was not able to hear or to speak could instantly communicate. The Bible says that the people who witnessed this miracle were amazed to the point that they begin to talk among themselves and wonder, could this be the promised Messiah? Well, the Pharisees overheard their conversation and they quickly responded by saying, no, it can't. In fact, the power he used to heal this man came from Satan himself. Jesus hearing this says, but That doesn't make sense. A kingdom divided against itself can't possibly stand. If you want to understand the power behind this miracle, then look beyond the words. You need to make a judgment about what I say based on what you see. Look at how he continues in verse 33. It says, every, either make the tree good and its fruit good, Or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. 
How can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man out of his good treasure brings forth what is good. The evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. I say to you that every careless word that men shall speak, they shall render account for in the day of judgment. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. Pretty strong. Jesus condemns the Pharisees for being blasphemous in their words. He calls them a brood of vipers. Or as James would say, their mouth is full of deadly poison. It's the same thing, isn't it? Jesus is saying that their mouth speaks out of that which fills their heart. Those sinful words came from a sin-corrupted heart. Now listen to this. The reason we have no power to control the tongue is because our tongue speaks out of that which fills the heart. And God alone can change the heart of man. Words of truth can only come from a heart that has been redeemed. We see that all throughout Scripture. Paul tells the Corinthians, no one, okay, no one who is led by the Spirit says Jesus is cursed. He goes on and says, and no one can say Jesus is Lord unless they are led by the Spirit. In other words, what we say gives evidence of who we serve. It's important to understand that our salvation takes place from the inside out. When we put our faith in Christ, He begins to change our heart. And when our heart is changed, it impacts the the lives we live, including the words we speak. James is trying to make this very same point. Bridling our tongue is ultimately a work of God. Only He can take what is filled with deadly poison and cause it to speak words of life. No man can control his own tongue. It is a work of God. And even for those who confess the name of Christ, we need to understand it is a daily surrender. A daily surrender. Look at how he continues back in James chapter 3, verse 9. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men. We have been made in, who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Neither can salt water produce fresh water. I think in many ways James is looking at these Jewish Christians who have in many ways developed these segregated lives and he's saying, look guys, it should not be this way. How can a fountain send both fresh and bitter water? Now, I want you to think about that. 
if we're out at the park together and, and, and I'm thirsty and I go over to a fountain and I take a drink and all of a sudden it starts spitting out bitter water, what am I going to do? I'm going to go find another fountain because something's wrong with that one, right? It's not right. And James is looking at their lives and saying, there's something not right when we bless our God but refuse to love other people. It just doesn't make sense to sing in unison. And you do a great job, by the way. To sing in unison as we worship, but then to speak hurtful words in our everyday life. James says something's not right when the same mouth blesses God and hurts people. Our words reveal who's in control of our heart. And only a heart that is fed by springs of living water can produce life-giving words. I was reminded this week uh, from a passage in Jeremiah where God is speaking, and you'll recognize this verse. It's very powerful, so listen to the words. He says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and dug out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. When I read that verse, what it tells me is, is if life-giving words don't come out of my mouth, I may have a broken cistern. I may be managed my life instead of being led by the Spirit, relying on a broken cistern instead of being filled with springs of living water. As we said in the very beginning, spiritual growth is a movement from a heart that is divided to a life of sincere and pure devotion. A process where more and more of our life is surrendered to the control of God's Spirit, transforming our lives to become more like Christ, not just in the life we live, but including the words we say. And it is a daily surrender. There's a beautiful verse in the Gospel of John where Jesus is speaking and he says, when you believe in me, when you believe in me, then out of your heart will flow springs of living water. Now, when I think about that, when I think about a a spring of water, what comes to my mind is a never-ending supply. What comes to my mind is is something that feeds a river that never runs dry. What what comes to my mind, and when I think about a spring of water coming from my heart, is it something that I cannot possibly contain within me. It not only satisfies my thirst, but it then spills over into the lives of other people. This week I had a really helpful conversation with a young couple, and in that conversation, they asked me this question, a very sincere question, and they just said, hey, tell us what your, kind of your vision is for Melanie Park Church. I was honest to them, as I'll be honest with you now, I said, I struggle with the question, because there's a part of me that feels like I need to impress you with my answer. I mean, I have a great friend over here at Redeemer, Dusty, who's a part of the Acts 29 network, a global network of raising up young people to go plant churches, and they're doing things all across the globe. It's impressive. I look at my friend Kyle Kegler, who's at Watermark in Dallas, and they've got a campus in Fort Worth and a campus in Plano, and they have Sunday school classes bigger than our church. 
And I love these men. But that's not who we are. And I appreciated the question because it got me to thinking about where God has us as a church in this season of ministry. And here's what came to my mind. I think that at least for a season, our church has become a safe place for those who are broken to be healed. I believe our church is a safe place for those who are broken to be healed. We are a hospital for the hurting. And now, hearing that, as they said, that may sound surprising because you look out in the uh, group here and you think, well, there's some people who've been here for a long time and some really deep relationships and a lot of people really know God's Word and, and they have sincere, rich faith. True. And wouldn't that be important when you have a hospital for the hurting to be able to come alongside those who know the great physician and can lead you there? So I want to encourage us to embrace the reality of where God has us as a church and to steward that responsibility by inviting people in. Maybe God is calling us here at Melanie Park Church, small little Bible church in Lubbock, Texas. Maybe, maybe he's calling us to make an impact for the kingdom eye to eye across your table, life on life in your living room. Places where those springs of living water can speak words of life. Words that are good for encouragement according to the need of the moment that it may give grace to those who hear. Grace-filled words from a spirit-led heart. We all share in the responsibility. And we are all held accountable for the words we say and I might add, for the ones we don't say. So if this is where God has us, and I believe it is, we need all hands on deck. We need all hands on deck because when you're going to enter into the life of the hurting, it is not an easy burden to carry. And we can't have a few select people doing all the investing into people's lives. We've got to have all hands on deck. Even if that means you are diligent to pray every single day for men in this church to be compelled. We've got qualified men, so we've got that covered. Qualified men is covered. We need men who are qualified, who are compelled to serve as an elder because they desire to care for people who are hurting. We need deacons who want to be a minister of mercy. Just caring for those in need. We need everyday people. We need families who embrace adoption, inviting an orphan into their home. Or an international student who's away from home who needs a family. We need more people like Betty Mason who just sits at home with a sweet older person who can't get out of her house 
and just wants her to know she's not forgotten. That's as significant of ministry as anything that takes place in this church. And no, it may not make the headlines, but it makes a kingdom impact. And I believe that's what we're called to be about. So if you're wondering, well, how how do I get involved in a mission like this? And, And where do I start? Let me offer these words of encouragement. First of all, you need to know right up front that it's not easy. It's not a quick fix. It's what Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. Eye to eye across your table. Life on life in your living room. The answer is relationships. It is a commitment to engage with the life of other people. Where people gather, that's where you go. So if you want to know how to get involved in this healing ministry, for those who are hurting, where people gather, that's where you go. So maybe it's a small group or a Sunday morning ABF. Maybe it's an if gathering for the women or the retreat like they had this weekend or any number of events where people gather, that's where you go. And don't just go to those places for what you expect to get out of them. You'll be fed. But let me encourage you to look for those opportunities as a chance to get to know people. Because you cannot bring healing to the hurting until you hear their story. So go to those things. Not just to be fed, but to hear stories and to get to know people. Go where people gather and gather as you go. (laughs) Invite people into your everyday life. Let them sit down and share a meal with your family. Go for a walk around your neighborhood. If you're Bob Park, go play a round of golf. (laughs) That's okay. That's a good thing. Just be intentional about building relationships. Our staff listened to a message this week. It's on Right Now Media. It was the Right Now Conference last year, and Jenny Allen was speaking. Jenny Allen is the one who started the IF Gathering. She made an interesting point about the life of Jesus that really caught my attention. She talked about how Jesus didn't mobilize the masses who had gathered to hear him speak. He taught the crowds, but then he invested in 12 men. He spoke to the crowds, but then invested deeply into the lives of 12 men. He restored their brokenness, and they brought healing to a broken world. Go where people gather. Gather as you go. Eye to eye across your table. Life on life in your living room. Speaking words of life from a spirit-filled heart, offering hope to a broken world, surrendering daily to the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for taking what we might consider a really small thing, the words we speak, and reminding us about what a life-changing impact they can make. Father, help us be encouraged and challenged 
to be faithful to your word, to live out the truth of this word by knowing that we really don't have anything to offer in and of ourselves, that we cannot control our tongue so that something profitable might come out of it. Instead, it is a work of your hand. It is the power of redemption. And when we surrender to you, you work through us to bring healing to a world that is broken. Lord, help us to embrace that beautiful privilege. Life on life. Eye to eye. May we be faithful to care for the needs of others is more important than our own. All hands on deck. May we be faithful to serve. It's in the blessed name of Christ we pray. Amen. Have a good day.